Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Laramie Taylor, Professor and Department Chair of Communications at UC Davis. His research explores the ways in which media influences our lives in a social context, including relationships and the motives of fanships for fictional teams, athletes, and celebrities. In this episode, we focus on the role of media in romantic relationships, how messaging influences our views on infidelity, our own perceived ranking within the dating pool, and the impact of dating apps. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Laramie Taylor. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you. I appreciate, uh, appreciate, appreciate the chance to visit with you this morning. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in psychology, in particular, in relationships? Yeah. Um, so I, I used to be a high school English teacher. Um, after I graduated from college, that's that's what I did. So this would have been in the in the you know mid to late nineteen nineties, and uh, I always um, appreciated that 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 literature and things was was more than just books, especially old books. And so I'd have my students study. Uh, magazines and newspapers and film and things like this. And and as time went on, it became clear that they were a lot more excited about um, TV in particular at the time and music than they were about anything else that we could, that, that, that I'd present to them. And I thought that seemed strange because of course music is just poetry and movies are just novels in a different format. But the, 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 the power of, of those different media um, just kept kind of asserting itself. Um, I'll tell you a funny story, dark story, a little bit funny story. <laughs> so um, I was teaching in a little town in in central Minnesota where everybody knew everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I taught all the juniors. There was 100 and, 150 of them total in the class or in the school. And so everybody knew everybody else's business. And prom was coming around and, and you, you knew who was going with, mm-hmm. with whom. Yeah. And... Uh, and the, the my my first class of the day, you know, homeroom class, um, there was a a, a a girl who was going with one of her guy friends. They'd been friends for since they were like four, right? And um, and everybody knew they were friends, and everybody knew that's why they were going. And uh, the the Monday after prom, one of the other girls in class kind of leans out in front of everybody else, looks over at this other girl, and's like, "Hey, you know, so and so, how's prom?" It just it was good. Just so, uh, did you do it? Jesus. And you know, you can't you can't let that go as a as a as a high school teacher. So I'm like, hey, inappropriate. First of all, and she's like, what? That's what that's what you do after prom. And I said, who says that's what you do after prom? And she just shakes her head. She says, Mr. Taylor, haven't you ever watched a movie? And I started to think about the assumptions under there. Right that that that. Um, her idea about what it meant to go to prom had been shaped by the mm-hmm. stories that she saw uh, in the media. And she recognized that that's where the stories were from, but she still um, allowed that to influence her, right? She was comfortable saying, this is the way to learn about the world and about about sexual and romantic relationships specifically. So um, I thought, I, I got to figure out if this is a real thing. And so that's when I applied to graduate school, and and uh, and and that ended up with me here at here at Davis. Yeah, I think that's a really telling story because many things do end up shaping our worldview in ways that we either recognize or don't recognize. And I think most people probably would say that, especially like high school, yeah, so susceptible to those type of influences. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing the thing about sex and relationships is that they're um, they're they're what we call backstage behaviors. Okay. Uh, we we don't have the same opportunity to observe them that we do a lot of other kinds of behaviors like ordinary social interactions. We see people engage in them all the time. We see how people argue because we have parents. Um, we see how people um, you know work together because they're working in front of us. But mm-hmm. when it comes to sex and relationships, people do this privately, and so we don't really know. Well, the 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 media take that private stuff, that backstage stuff, and make it in front of the curtain. They give us something to watch, and so it's yeah. more salient maybe than other kinds of stuff in the media. That makes a lot of sense. So, so we have a big question to start off. What is love? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a huge question indeed. Um, so I've been I've been thinking about this, mm-hmm. and I think there's two answers. Right. Um, the first answer is the is the um, 
is the more scientific answer. And and these are not these are consistent with each other, these two answers. But the first answer is love is the 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 combination of the different psychophysiological responses that we have um that are designed or selected for in order to um promote our survival and our um and our our, our reproduction right so we feel uh we're programmed to feel love for um another person so that we're motivated to mate we're programmed to feel um love towards children so that we raise them up and they're successful and we're, we're programmed to feel these affinitive feelings towards other people so that we have a community that will protect us and give us resources and make sure that we survive and our, our, our genes survive. Um, so it's, it's, I mean, it's biochemical, mm-hmm. right? But <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I think love is also, um, you know, in, in, in sort of more practical terms, more, more, more humanistic terms, um, love is the intersection of uh, attraction not necessarily physical attraction, but finding somebody to be appealing and, uh, and, and, you know, someone that you want to be around and commitment. So attraction and commitment together. That's, that's what love is. It means I want to be around you and I'm willing to make a commitment to continue to be around you and whatever else. Especially because you said commitment. Is it a choice? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good question too. Um, yeah. Yeah, to a certain extent it is, um, mm-hmm. especially romantic love. Yeah. You know, um, you know, we, we, we're definitely going to feel strong things. Those, those biochemical mm-hmm. signals that, um, sort of promote the affinity with other people, you know, that's, that's a lot of that's going to be automatic. Um, but I, I definitely think when it comes to romantic love, there's a, there's a, there's a choice involved where we decide to act on the f- feelings that we have mm-hmm. and to and to make a commitment to you know prolong them protract them yeah. you know make make them make them continue yeah yeah taking love as a motivating factor for joining many relationships could you briefly describe your research with relationships and how you conduct that research yeah so um i you know i research a, a lot of areas but my research on sex and romance mm-hmm. and things like that um is is uh principally experimental um, so I, I manipulate some, um, set of media messages and then I show some people one version and other people, the other version, and I measure the outcomes. Um, so for example, uh, I might, uh, I might bring people into the lab and, and you see, you know, you watch five movie trailers and, uh, some people watch, um, you know, three, three of the trailers are the same for everybody, but the other two trailers, you know, some people see a version where there's, you know, two two guys competing over the affection of one woman, and other people see trailers where two women are con- competing over the affection of one man. And then afterwards, I ask them to you know make some choices about what kind of partner they're looking for, or um, how how confident they would be in a romantic, a potential romantic situation, something like that, and then compare the differences. So that's that's most of my research. Um, the other the other thing that I do is. Um, I look for situations where there's variation in social behavior anyway that leaves some kind of trace that I can study. You know, so um, if if you go online, chat chat rooms and things mm-hmm. are full of this kind of stuff. And I've got a colleague that um, that has data that she's gotten from um, online dating sites uh, that you know she has information about what information people post and how many responses they get and stuff like that. Any, any, any of those circumstances where somebody else is just sort of leaving information about social relationships, we can gather and then kind of analyze, analyze that. So before we get into like some of the findings, I'm curious, do you make your own movie trailers? (laughs) (laughs) No. So, um, I'll make, I don't make movie trailers. Um, we'll use existing movie trailers, but sometimes we'll manipulate them, like Mm -hmm. re-edit them. Yeah. Um, I'll make, uh, sometimes we use, we'll use descriptions of movies. Mm -hmm. Like we set up a fake website and make the claim that it's, you know, focuses on upcoming movies that are still in production. And then we'll, you know, use stock photos and, and, and descriptions that we make up or that, that we, uh, we'll, we'll take existing romantic movies from 50 years ago 
change the names and things and then nobody recognizes them. Uh, and, super interesting. Yeah. Plus nobody's seen movies from, from, you know, 60, 50 years ago anyway. Um, yeah. It, it, it did happen once that we, we used uh, Sabrina. Yep, Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart movie from a hundred years ago. And then your point was proven. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we kind of changed the names around and stuff. And then it got, it got remade with Harrison Ford and released while we were still doing, uh, okay. doing dating. Yeah. So we're like, well, let's, we'll try something else. Yeah. But, and then with the dating sites, do you get data from like the app provider or is it you, are they sitting through scrolling through people's profiles and just <laughs> writing what? stuff down? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Dr. Alexopoulos, yeah. her, the data set that, well, she's got two. Um, one of them is from, um, a small, uh, dating app mm -hmm. that just said, you know, we'd love some insight into what's happening. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and so they shared data with her. It's anonymized. There's no yeah, names yeah, yeah, yeah. and she doesn't see pictures. Um, but she knows like what kind of information is shared and what's coming in. Um, and then she has uh, a bunch of Ashley Madison data, do you know? No. So Ashley, Ashley Madison is a, is a, a cheating site. Like that's how they, oh, that's how they, oh, okay, I think about it. Yeah. So that's how they market it. Right. Well, if you want to, if you want to have an affair, <laughs> sign up here and we'll, you know, f help you find somebody else who wants to have an affair. And they had a data breach, um, four or five years ago where, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with detailed <laughs> names, um, dates, all this kind of stuff just was hacked and then made public. Oof. And so Ashley Madison, the company, um, then sort of strategically shared some information with researchers. That oh, said, okay, well, yeah. we'll just give you this so that you stop using our, <laughs> yeah. our totally identifiable data that yeah. we are going to get sued for losing. And then are you able to research the impact of social media specifically? Yeah. I mean, yes and no, right? So, um, social media has become so pervasive now that it's hard to it's hard to isolate, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's also hard to hard to um, manipulate in the same way. Yeah. Um, so, part of the power of social media is that these messages are coming from or being endorsed by people that you actually know. And so, in a laboratory setting, if I if I create a fake social media account, I can do that. If I create fake content and present it to you, I can do that. Mm. But it's not going to come from someone you know or be endorsed by someone you know, and so it's going to hit differently. Okay. So the way we tend to do social media research is by you know asking people to, you know, imagine how you would feel if, okay. uh, or we just measure how they how they use social media generally. Mm -hmm. And uh, and look for different patterns of you know perception and attitudes and things based on that. Okay, very interesting. Yeah. One more thing on social media: Do you think it's been a net positive or a net negative in relation to communication? Yeah. Wow. I'm going to plead the fifth. I don't think <laughs> I don't think we know yet. Um, That's fair. Yeah. And because the negatives are are are, are definitely strong and they're and they're growing. growing. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, as the sort of model for 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 how social media functions and how it makes its money and how people use it change. Um, yeah, the effects are changing too. I mean, I think it's great that I can, I keep in friends with, uh, in touch with friends from high school that yeah. we had totally lost contact. Mm -hmm. And then Facebook became universal and, and suddenly we're, you know, I know about their kids, you know? Yeah. I know how, what's your name's hockey game went <laughs> over the weekend. Um, which I think is real. I mean, it's a real gift. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. And going into some of the research, how has media impacted our relationships? Yeah, in so many ways. <laughs> um, in in just so many ways. So the relationships that we enter into, um, like how we choose our partners and uh, how we feel about the partners we have are the result of a lot of dynamic factors within us and in the environment that we live in, the social environment and the real environment that we live in. Media can change your perceptions about that environment in ways that are subtle and that we're, and that we're often not aware of. Um, so when it's, when, it's, um, when it's doing that, then uh, it changes how we approach our relationships, how we think about the people around us, and often in ways that we're not aware of, right? It's not always so... Um, 
something that we're so conscious of the way my student was back in back in Minnesota. Oh, well, TV says to do it, and so that's that's what we should do, right? Instead, it's 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 little changes that we we can't attribute to anything in particular. We feel like they're natural or uh, natural or 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 inevitable. Um, you know, some of the specific things uh, that 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 my research has found is that, um, you know, showing uh, representations of cheating change how tolerant we are of cheating. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, if if everybody's doing it, then it's it's normal, right? So why why would we particularly worry about it? Um, or uh, another another interesting thing we found we 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 did an experiment where where women listened to music that had cheating in it. And so much music, by the way, yeah. is about cheating. Like so many popular songs, hip hop songs, country songs, especially, um, rock songs. And, and, and what we found is that if we played women songs where, uh, where cheating gets punished, they actually became more tolerant of, of cheating. Meaning that when we said, okay, if your partner cheated on you, how likely would you be to forgive them and stay with them? And they're more likely to stay if they hear the songs where the cheater gets punished. Like the classic Kelly Carson. I yeah, dump my exactly. Keys in the car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pretty little souped up four wheel drive. And 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 there's the, even like just regret. Yeah. Like if the person is singing about cheating, like oh, I feel bad. Just I'm going to cheat anyway, but I feel bad. Well, because they have the sense that cheaters are already punished. Interesting. Uh, you know, so if if they already got punished by feeling bad, then I guess I don't need to punish him by leaving him. Sort of a thing, that's <laughs> right. Which is which is pretty which is pretty strange. Um, and then you know, media changes the way that we see ourselves in terms of uh, our value as as romantic partners, and it changes the way we see the the I don't know the relationship or the dating market around us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, cause you know, we're making comparisons, um, with what we've seen in the media and, and, and we're taking kind of our cues, like the cues that we used to get from our, our actual environment, right? 10,000 years ago, you decided who to mate with based on, you know, who's in the village and, and are, are the crops doing well? And, 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 you know, are my kids going to survive if I have a kid right now? And now it's based on all those same cues are still important to us at some subconscious level, but instead of getting them from reality, we're getting them from, from the media. Could you speak more on, especially looking around and seeing like kind of the dating pool or the market and how that's been changed, especially with social media, the apps where a new person is literally a swipe away at, <laughs> after yeah. two clicks. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and that's really interesting for uh yeah so it's uh, it, so for dating apps it's a very peculiar thing mm-hmm. right um because of course you can get that impression but the reality is that in in um most dating apps the the the, the gender um balance is way off right oh, it's, sure. it's super skewed um it used to be that that women dramatically outnumbered men on dating apps, um, and and now it's it's just the reverse. So if uh, if you if you go on um, like like Tinder mm-hmm. um, or one of the other geo based, um, it's about f- it's about four or five to one, right? There's 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 five times as many men. <laughs> That's so funny as there are as there are women, and yet when when you sit down and look, you know, you're swiping, 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 and it's woman after woman after woman after woman because that's all you're getting shown. Um, and, 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 you know, but of course what, what the general experience is, you know, you swipe, which way do you swipe? If you like them, you swipe, right. Is that what yeah. That? Okay. So yeah. swipe and right, swipe and right. And then, you know, don't get any matches. So guys will swipe, right. Um, I think it's four times as often, maybe five times as often as women, uh, on, on Tinder. And it's really a function of, um, you know, of the, of the real gender ratios, because they can be pickier because there's lots more lots more guys and there are girls on the app so yeah 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 the 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 idea of um the whole idea of gender ratios is really is really very straightforward when it comes to the dating market if there's if there's lots of potential partners then 
you can you can you know raise your standards mm -hmm. um, because your own value gets gets elevated, right? Um, from the like woman's perspective in this, yeah. Well, from from you know whoever the target person is. Like. Oh, okay, so yeah, for yeah. for you and me, um, if we're you know if we're well, okay, UC Davis, good example. Uh, they just released their their annual numbers. Mm -hmm. So there's 42,000 students at UC Davis, including graduate and professional students. 60% are women, mm -hmm. right? So men are outnumbered um, about about three to two, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, assuming everybody, and that's not a fair assumption, but if we assume that everybody wants a partner, mm -hmm. um, and that the distribution of folks who have same-sex attraction is about the same on both sides, um, then, you know, it, it's it's good to be a guy. Yeah. You know? Um, and and we see that in, in, in other sort of real contexts as well, like in, in, in Alaska, uh, where a lot of the immigration into the state is driven by temporary employment seeking, where, um, you know, principally men go from the lower, lower 48 up to Alaska to work. Mm -hmm. And it creates in in a lot of cities this huge gender imbalance, and and you know there are consequences. And and China, where they had you know selective um, infanticide and things like this for years, there's this this generation with I don't remember the precise numbers, millions of what they call surplus men, yeah. you know, which means uh, you know women's value in the in the in the dating market or the relationship market goes up because they're more scarce resource. And then do you subscribe to the idea of like perceived mate value? And could you maybe like go into some of yeah. what those things are? Yeah, no, so my perceived mate value is the value that I think I have on, on the, like the dating market, right? Mm -hmm. What am I, what am I, what am I worth? Um, in, in my research, the strongest predictor of that is how physically attractive I think I am. Like the prettier I think I am, the higher I think my my mate value is, and that's true for men and women. Um, but obviously, there's other stuff as well, right? So if I'm, you know, if I have more uh, money or a nicer car or I'm smarter, I have more degrees, whatever else, I that might all contribute to how valuable I see myself in the in the in the mating market as well. And then you're focusing on yourself. So does if I think I'm the hottest guy in the world. I'm going to be perceived as being hotter by other people. Not, not, not necessarily. Um, but you are going to, it's going to change your behavior towards mm -hmm. other people. Right. So if I think I'm the most valuable person in the mating market, then when I look at prospective partners, I'm only going to approach partners that I think are, are, are matching me in value. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so assortative mating is really, um, the process of figuring out, um, What's what's my reproductive value or my my relationship value, and who has how can I optimize my return? Right. So, what's the best person I can get given my given my value? Right. And we're really good at figuring that out. Really. Oh yeah. Like, Even now with social media, especially because you go online, you see all these different like like the most attractive people, the wealthiest people, and then you will look around the real world and then you don't see those people. <laughs> yeah. And if your standards are the ones you see online, would we not become like more picky, more selective and our own ideas are skewed? We, we, we do. Okay. Um, and I think that, I think that hurts, but you know, if, if you, so th there was a bunch of research that was done uh, about 10 years ago with speed dating. Have you heard of speed dating? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and they pretty much found that they could match people almost one to one. Like if they, if they, you know, had like an objective panel rank, just the physical attractiveness of all the men and all the women involved, the, the, the matches that emerged were pretty much one to one. The most attractive people matched each other, the last, second, third, fourth, fifth. I mean, we're, we're, we're good at this. Yeah. Given a, a need to do it. Right. Um, but things like you're talking about, like this um, set of expectations that we develop somewhere else are going to have an impact on the way that we interact, even after we're partnered, right? Um, so the, the, the number one predictor of infidelity is my, my perceived next best alternative, mm -hmm. right? So if I, if I 
Um, and, and relationship dissolution too, right? That's why we break up because I think I can do, I can do better. Um, like if I think, if I think my next best alternative is better than my current partner, then I break up uh, or I cheat. And if my sense of what my available options are, are being shaped by what's in the media, um, by the idealized bodies and the, you know, the wealth and all that kind of stuff, then yeah. Yeah. And has your research kind of tying back to the infidelity piece, it looks at the shift in tolerance, but has it looked into shifts of like action? Has there been more acts of infidelity? So we, we can show in intention to commit infidelity, but the way we measure that is, is not through action. Yeah. I mean, we just ask, okay, if you had the chance, would you? Right. Um, and people, people will say yes. Most people say no. Uh, but most people, I mean, most people aren't everybody, right? So there's always people like, yeah, take, take a shot, especially if I thought I'd get away with it. Um, measuring acts of infidelity is problematic in a couple in a couple <laughs> ways. You know, first, like as a just as a researcher, before people leave the lab, if I've manipulated the way they feel, I have to be completely honest with them and say I manipulated the way you feel, and. And usually that eliminates the effect. Mm -hmm. Like I can bring them back down. Just ethically, I have a responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. right? Um, it would be pretty pretty shady if I thought I was going to get people to cheat and I send them out to cheat. <laughs> and I like call them. That's that's yeah. I don't I don't really feel comfortable with that. Um, and then people lie, of course, about yeah. cheating. So um, you know when we when we ask people, have you been cheated on? Um, they say yes a lot more often than we say if we ask, have you cheated? And in theory, those numbers should be the same, like over large numbers of yeah. people, right? Um, so. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. Are there ways to mitigate how like receptive you are to these media influences? Definitely. Yeah, the more you know about the media, the more skeptical you are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you, if you, um, if you're th thinking about it carefully, if you're thinking about where media come from and, um, you know, I, I like this uh, this 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 song that's on the radio um, about Victoria's Secret. Have you heard have you heard this one? I'm not sure. It's a funny little song. It's a this woman who got famous on TikTok making up little songs, and mm -hmm. now she's got a song on the radio, and uh, and and she says, I, "I wish somebody had told me when I was younger that uh, that not all bodies are the same. Um, that." you know, Photoshop and all this stuff um, is manipulating me for somebody else's financial benefit. She's a little more poetic than yeah. I am. <laughs> and, uh, and she says, you know, I know Victoria's secret. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, she was made up by a dude, which, you know, there's a guy in Ohio that founded yeah. Victoria's secret, secret gets rich. So that kind of awareness that that promotes that, that there are factors beyond reality that are shaping our media environment um, help, make us more skeptical and they help us resist. Um, one of the problems with that is that we use media for a reason, mm -hmm. right? We seek it out to be entertained. Um, we seek it out to escape from reality. And none of that works as well if you're being skeptical all the time. Yeah. Right? So if I wanna really escape, then I, I turn the skepticism down in my head and that's great, but while my defenses are lowered, what other messages are getting in. Yeah. Is that really great to escape? Is media great for escape? No. Is it great that we use oh, media to <laughs> escape? Um, you know, sometimes it is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, there was a great study that was done. This is all oh, good stars, mid nineties. So forever ago, right? <laughs> um, where they randomly recruited people in Italy. Um, and then so they had like 300 families and they randomly picked half of them and took away their TV for a month, right? So in, in these, these families, they just take away the TV and they were all families with uh, two parents and at least two children. And the assumption back then was that, you know, we take the TV out of the home, then everybody plays games and they read books, they get to know each other again and, you know, everything, all good things happen, not even close huge increase in familial stress and conflict and things like this because we use media strategically to escape and de-stress to facilitate social interaction i mean i'll tell you what you don't get along with your parents for a while when you're in college go home the thing you can still do is like watch the game with 
with dad mm-hmm. or mom or whoever the bigger fan is, or, you know, watch Jeopardy and kind of mutter the answers and show them how smart you are. And whatever, whatever your family's media use patterns are, you know, there's something there that lets you be social together while avoiding conflict. So yeah, escape can be great. Yeah. Um, we can do it way too much. You know, that's, that's what I worry about with the TikToks and the vines and all these, all these super short instances of media content that, you know, basically train you to have a very short attention span and yeah it's that's a different that's there, a different talk yeah there's a really scary graph i saw this morning where it showed between ages like 13 to 17 the major uh social media platforms like tiktok youtube instagram and amount of time spent per and the categories were the biggest one for youtube was like over 30 i think percent all the time basically all the yeah, time yeah and it, that whole graphic was scary and I can see if I can find a link and like way to show people after on like our website, but yeah. it, was, it was crazy. No, and that, and that doesn't surprise me, yeah. you know, and I've got kids. And so when I say that, you know that I'm saying, yeah, I see that, right. Yeah. Um, kids that are, you know, sitting waiting for their parents to pick them up from, you know, from, from after school, whatever. And they're, all on their phones. <laughs> and I was like, I remember being that kid yeah. before we had, you know, smartphones and we were talking and, and, you know, getting to know people that we didn't know already. And we were forming relationships and things. And a lot of that's gone. Yeah. yeah. It'd be cool to see like, if they could prescribe what is the right amount of escapism in a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting question. Cause I think a lot of our issues are we created so much input from all the technology that we need to escape. Cause if part of this conversation, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. Oh, how long ago was it that we didn't need to escape? Like we have to escape now because media is a good escape right now yeah. because we're constantly overloaded, constantly under pressure. But like that was self-inflicted. Yeah. That's deep. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to say, you know, so we started, we, I mean, not me, but researchers starting asking this question of why do you watch television, right? Mm-hmm. What what are you getting out of it in the 1970s, right? Before the internet, before home computers, before whatever. And even then people were saying to escape. Yeah. So um, I, I think, I think the, that a natural response to stress is to not... Sometimes to not deal with the stress, but just to escape from it and then be able to step back into it a little healthier. I'll tell you, I'll tell you some other cool research. Um, again, not mine, but um, there's a a good number of studies that find that you can use media to increase people's pain threshold, uh, especially humorous media, but even high stress media, you can actually make them more sort of, um, I don't know, bullet, bulletproof a little bit. What or? is high stress media? So, so something that's going to make you feel anxious, okay. like terror or suspense or stuff like that. Yeah. Anything that gets your, gets your heart rate going also is going to release some endorphins into yeah. you. And yeah. Or, or, um, one of our, one of our other faculty on the floor, um, Jorge Pena has research that he looks at how using VR tours of art museums can help people with chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, you know, a big part of it's just escape. You know, I'm going to focus on something that isn't the thing that's causing me stress, which is in this case, physical pain. I put my attention somewhere else and then the pain gets alleviated. So. And I don't know if this question won't go anywhere, but have people looked at the net benefit for escaping from the standpoint of if you're constantly have an escape available and you, and it does benefit you, yeah, but if you instead remove all escapes and you were forced to confront that problem that's causing you the stress, causing you whatever issues you may be having, would we be better, better off? off? Yeah, I yeah, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I think that's, that's I think that's a complicated question yeah. too, though. Definitely. Um, yeah, but no that that idea of you know escaping too much and and even seeking entertainment and distraction stuff too much. I think that's a real a real thing. Yeah, definitely. And going back to the research a little bit, what are the biggest influences on our mate preference? Yeah, so that's that's the thing. It's it's a complicated web, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the most fundamental level, uh, all of those 
well, not all, most of these things about mate preferences and, and, and selectivity are coming from an, an evolved drive to optimize our reproductive success and the survival of our offspring, right? Um, so, you know, there's, there's two basic ways you can do that. You can mate lots of times with people who um, are, are going to have genes that'll, that'll get passed on, or you can mate with fewer people who are going to invest highly in, in any potential offspring. Um, so even though we've divorced, um, you know, romance and dating and, and marriage and sex from reproduction, all those fundamental drivers are still there, right? Mm -hmm. They're still part of what informs all the decisions that we make. And so the environmental cues and the reproductive opportunities and the, all that stuff um, matters together to, to, to make those decisions. But those decisions. But I think the key for most of us is that that sort of balance between um, our perceived mate value and trying to find the most valuable mate we can, right? Most attractive, most skilled, most resources, most most whatever. Um, within whatever whatever context um we're we're in and i think the most important context cues are the ones that suggest either a long-term strategy right invest in the mm -hmm. partner invest in potential offspring or a short-term strategy just get lots of attractive strong partners um yeah so i think those are probably the two the two key things could you speak more on the characteristic differences between the short-term partner and the long-term partner and what people are looking for? Yeah. So, um, the, the, most of the research in this area has been done on, uh, on, on women seeking male partners. Mm -hmm. Um, to a certain extent, the same kind of principles go the other way, um, as well. But so if you want to, if, I mean, imagine, right. 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, when we're evolving, like the fine tuning on, on the species, right? When we're becoming who we are. Um, if you're in a, a resource rich environment um, and you want to be reproductively successful, one way to do that is to get lots of attractive, strong partners so that your offspring will be attractive and strong, mm -hmm. right? And then they will secure lots of partners too, right? So we, Bus, um, the researcher Bus refers to this as a, like a good genes strategy, right? Um, if I, if I get enough, um, you know, if, 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 if my partners are strong and beautiful and, and stuff like that, then my babies will be strong and beautiful and then they will be attractive to partners and get all the partners and I will have lots and lots of grandkids and great grandkids. My genes continue. Um, and, and, and we talk about this as if it's a choice we're making. It's not, it's not about a mm -hmm. choice. It's not about a conscious strategizing. It's how the genes um, expression functions to drive behavior, which is then selected for evolutionarily. Um, and th the other approach, uh, is about finding somebody that's, that's going to be committed and that's going to stick around. So even if you have fewer kids, they're, they're going to get the resources from not one parent, but two parents. Um, and, and that's going to persist. So if, if you want that kind of person, then it's somebody who's going to be nurturing, who's going to be committed, who's going to be like a high resource person who's going to, you know, be able to, you know, earn lots of money or bring back lots of pelts and, and mammoth <laughs> meat or whatever you're looking for. Um, yeah. So some of the research, including some of my research, we talk about CADs and dads, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 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 the dad is the nurturing one and the cat is the kind of the bad boy. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's those two, you know, choices are present in the in the cultural narratives around partners, too. Right. When you think about the movies where there's two guys pursuing the same woman, isn't it usually one like nice guy? Yeah. And one bad boy. And she likes the bad boy sometimes. But we know she's going to end up with the nice guy. Right. Mm -hmm. That's how that works. Is there research on like given because it seems like there's an assumption that the cad is more attractive from the like reproductive end. Yeah. Is the research on given the same base ranking 
choices that are made. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is, this is complicated. This is complicated too. So you're saying like, if, if, if the cat and the dad have the same physical attractiveness, mm-hmm. where's the, what, what's the preference, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's about who you think is going to pass on your genes or who's more likely evolutionarily to pass on your, your genes with theirs. Right. Mm-hmm. And so things like assertiveness, aggression, um, things like that count as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, the, the dad might be, you know, the, the, the nurturing guy might be physically beautiful. Um, but if he's just a nice guy, maybe he's not going to, you know, secure as many, as many mates and pass on the, the genes as effectively. Have you ever thought about what would be the perfect balance? If you could like <laughs> make your man. Yeah. So, so, okay. This is, this is some weird. Uh, <laughs> so there's this research where they look at, at this strictly from a biological perspective, mm-hmm. right? Strictly biology where they um, measure women's, like where they are in their reproductive cycle and they look hormonally. And when women are at their most uh, fertile part of their cycle, they're more interested in short-term relationships and they're more interested in in the bad boys, right? And then when they're in other parts of the cycle, then they're more interested in the nurturing and stuff like that. Like things like facial symmetry matter more when they're more, um, when they're more fertile and then that's less important when they're, um, when they're, when they're not. So across the, across the course of, you know, 28 days, there's variation in, in what women seek. So I, th- I think, I think the perfect man, um, is one that can exhibit both sets of, uh, characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody who can be strong and nurturing, um, somebody who's, uh, physically attractive, but also, you know, has a, has a soft side, somebody who's going to be loyal, um, but can, you know, beat his chest a little bit when that sounds terrible. (laughs) You know, we're wading into some bad gender stereotypes here. And then when we're talking about attractiveness, why, like, how true is it about like certain physical features representing fertility or like the reason something is attractive is because it's going to represent some outcome? Yeah. I mean, only to a point, right? mm -hmm. Um, When you look at the tremendous variation in, in attractiveness standards across different cultures, it's clear that a lot of these things are, are culturally determined, right? Um, Some of them less so, right? The, the, the sort of um, facial symmetry, bilateral symmetry seems to be a genuine indicator of overall um, fitness. And, and it's weird because, you know, if, if you do the, 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 the tests where you ask people to smell sweaty t-shirts, right. (laughs) And you say, okay, which one do you like the smell of best? Um, women consistently pick the ones worn by men who have greater facial symmetry. Whoa. Just based That's on insane. Symmetry, right? So at some fundamental level, I mean, in, infants show a preference for facial symmetry when they're three months old. So there's, there's some things that are very fundamental, like just they, they exhibit general overall fitness and that's, and that's one of them. But things like, you know, I've, I've heard like the, oh, the, you know, red lips is, you know, to suggest reproductive, whatever. I, I don't buy any of that. Um, now, with that said, um, things like, uh, you know, broader hips, an hourglass figure for women, things like that, you know, these are, these are, these are ancient mm-hmm. <laughs> um, aesthetic preferences, right? The oldest art we have from humans are these little figurines, these little Venus figurines from Western Europe, tens of thousands of years old. And exaggerated hips and breasts and things. I mean, they're, yeah. Has your research looked into how social media has impacted our perceptions of our own body image and how that differs from men and women? Yeah, there's a lot of research on that now. Um, Some of it mine, um, but there's probably been a hundred studies on this question in the last, just in the last couple of years. Um, And the, uh, so my, my research has tended to focus on very specific kinds of media messages mm-hmm. in social media, um, like Fitspiration. Have you heard of this? So this is a- Inspiring to be healthy. Like fit, healthy right. Yeah. So it's, it's supposed to be, here's a, a, a little meme I made that's going to inspire you to be, to go to the gym and, and get strong and stuff. 
Um, but it turns out it's it's mostly images of very, very thin women um, in the gym, and it makes women who look at these images feel worse about their bodies, mm. which is not a huge surprise. Um, the, the, the strongest evidence that we have right now is that it's e e even more than the images that you see, it's what you do to yourself um, that, that that's going to hurt your body image. So it's it's not so much I look at beautiful people, it's that I'm trying to post pictures of an idealized version of myself, and in doing so, I, I kind of objectify myself and criticize myself, you know? Um, you think about the people who are posting a selfie every day, and how many pictures do they take before they have one that they're willing to post, you know? And what are they saying inside their head to the other 29 pictures? You know, oh, I don't look good. I look fat in this one. I look, I look funny. This makes my whatever. All of that negative self-talk, that's what gets you the most. And it gets men and women uh, both. So I heard a really good analogy once about that negative self-talk. And if you're a skier going down a hill, going through the trees, do you tell yourself, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree? Yeah. Or do you find that path of snow to get through it? Yeah, yeah, and exactly. I thought that was a really awesome like, metaphor, especially being somewhat of a skier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, taking selfies to for other people very bad for you <laughs> don't yeah. recommend it at all have you looked at the body image differences between men and women yeah so my research is focused mostly on either or okay um but i'll tell you what the collective research is mm -hmm. right so you know men have higher self-regard or at least higher self-regard in almost every way than women right so we has that always been the case Probably. Okay. Yeah. We just think very highly of ourselves, or at least are more comfortable saying we think highly of ourselves um, compared to women. Even like attractiveness, if we say rate yourself on a scale one to 10, how attractive are you? Guys, much more likely to say nine than women. Women at UC Davis usually say about seven to eight. That's kind of where they put themselves. Men at UC Davis, like eight and a half to 10, somewhere in there. Um, <laughs> which, yeah, I don't know. Um, where are we going with that? Oh, yeah. So, um, when it comes to susceptibility to media messages, um, you know, women are the most vulnerable, um, or yeah, women across the board. And then gay men are actually very susceptible to, to, um, negative body image, uh, results from viewing idealized bodies online. Heterosexual men are the least influenced by it, but they are still influenced. It, it takes a different form. I mean, um, heterosexual men are less worried about, uh, well, and men in general, less worried about, you know, thinness than they are muscularity. Mm. Um, but it's still that case of there's some ideal body that I should be striving towards that I'm, you know, coming up short. Yeah. And kind of tying back into the research again, have you looked at how advertisements within media have impacted men and women? Yeah. Advertisements are a trip because... Um, they are all about, I mean, they're, they're unapologetic that they're trying to get us to focus on stuff more, right? Stuff or services or whatever. Um, so the, the focus is on, in on, the focus is on inadequacy, mm -hmm. right? They have to convince us that we don't have what we need or what we should have or whatever. Um, and so any, any body of advertising is probably going to produce some negative effects. And the research is pretty consistent that exposure to advertisements um, results in an increased sense of, uh, of uh, materialism, like the, the, the sense that stuff is what's going to make me happy. Um, and, and I think that's inherently problematic, mm -hmm. right? Um, Cause stuff doesn't, stuff doesn't make you happy as it turns out. Um, but my particular research in the, in the area of uh, advertisements and, um, and the, this question of, you know, the sort of mating market, the, the dating market, whatever, um, starts with this assumption that, uh, that, that, that in a resource rich environment, women should be more likely to pursue a short term mating strategy. Right. And it, you can imagine our ancestors 50,000 years ago, if, if I'm someplace where there's tons of food and there's tons of everything, I don't really need more resources from a, a long-term partner to raise my, to pass on my genes, to raise my children. Um, so I wondered if that was true. And um, 
what I mostly found, so I, I created a, an experiment where I showed people you know, different ads for similar products, but luxury products, ordinary consumer products, or just completely, you know, no, no ads at all. And it's exposure to the luxury ads that made a difference. And the biggest difference is it makes, um, it makes women, uh, at least in my experiment, more interested in men with traits like, um, you know, high earning potential, uh, greater intelligence, um, things like that. Like, like they wanted the things mm -hmm. or they saw it as, um, like their, their, their partner choices, a way to get the, get the luxury goods. Which is a little troubling, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially when you think about how many, how many ads we see, right? Social media, every app on my phone, I think. Well, not everyone. Most of the apps yeah. on my phone have that banner ad across the bottom or whatever. Like all of them. Yeah, it's, and we're being sold something completely all the time. targeted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they know how to get you. And then, do you think we're acting on those? Like, are we shifting our practices, especially in the last 10, 20 years? Like, has there been data showing that we're cheating more than ever? We are oh, yeah, yeah. finding, like, we're only selecting, like, higher earning men or, like, yeah, these so, different things. So, it's, it's, a little, it's a little weirder than that, right? So, mm -hmm. if you look at the population level, we're actually having less sex uh, mm -hmm. starting later um, than we have in like since we started tracking this stuff 50, 60 years ago, right? Um, kids are also doing less drugs than they used to, which like high school kids, which is which really? is interesting. Do you um, count nicotine in that and vaping? So yeah, vaping brought this big spike, but nobody smokes anymore, huh. which is a, I mean, not nobody, but yeah, it's a step in the, small step in the right direction. So, but, but, but I think these things are related too, right? Because it's not just... So, so, so I'm, I'm thinking about the mating market and I'm thinking about, you know, my own value in it. And this is an area where the, you know, my estimation of my own worth is going to have a direct impact on my behaviors, right? So imagine you're at a party and um, you've, you know, been on the social media, you've been taking some selfies and you feel like your own mate value is not real high at the moment. You walk in and because it's Davis, everybody there is beautiful. Um, and, and you look around and you think, okay, who should I hit on? Who should I approach right now? And you look at these attractive people of the sex you're interested in and you think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good enough for that person. Mm -hmm. As a consequence, you don't even approach them. Yeah. Right? Um, and if you don't approach them, you don't, you don't, you don't form the relationship and yeah, that's, that's it. So you're maybe extrapolating the idea that it's, I think it's pretty well understood now that the younger generation is like the most anxious and depressed it's probably ever been and probably feeling the worst about themselves than they probably ever have. Yep. So now that's very much impacting the sexual relationships. I suspect so, yeah. And then have you seen any of the data saying that Overall, people are having less sex and having it later in life, but there's like the select few that have way more sex earlier, like, like the few that are hoarding all of it <laughs> in a way. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if everybody's trying to, to get the most attractive partners possible, um, then... Yeah, you could see how it could accumulate so that the, the a very small number of people could have lots of partners mm -hmm. and a lot of other people would have would have fewer. Yeah. And then we get into, you know, what are the what are the different mating strategies available to women and men? And one strategy for men is just have sex with lots and lots of people. Mm -hmm. Like from a biological perspective, that was one way to pass on your genes um pretty reliably. Have you looked at birth control and how that's impacting women's behaviors? Because now they they don't have the the risk of the nine month yeah, brightness. It's, I, I I have not. Okay. Um, I've looked at the research and the interesting thing I think is it's it's less about that than it is about the actual hormonal changes mm -hmm. yep. that they're that they're experiencing. Because again, variation in the timing of the reproductive cycle we know changes um, decisions that they're making about 
preferences about long-term versus short-term. Well, if you, if you biologically tell their body that they're a little bit pregnant all the time, yeah, they're going to make some different choices, right? Birth control on the hormonal level is probably good for, good for the dads, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the cads, because, you know, just the bad boy doesn't seem quite as important at that point. That's very interesting. Yeah. Like we've been talking about like the two strategies, but growing up, you're kind of only told about a longer term way to date. Is that like when you're looking at data, do some people just take a short term approach to dating for a long time? Some people never take anything else. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, so the first time I, I measured, um, what's called sociosexuality, right? How comfortable people feel with lots of relationships as opposed to one long-term committed relationship. Um, I use this, this measure that's, uh, it's got like five or six questions. And one of the questions is of the people, you know, now with how many would you, would you like to have sex? Right. And you can see how that could reflect my general orientation. Like for me, the answer is, well, you know, one, my spouse, um, for some people it's, you know, well, these three attractive people, I had one person write all of them, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. So there's, there's folks out there that that's just their orientation. Cause keep in mind, yes, you know, we're given this cultural narrative from a lot of sources that, you know, you find somebody, you fall in love, you whatever, but that's not the only cultural narrative, right? There's also, um, you know, <laughs> there's lots of music about hooking up with lots of people. Um, there's lots of visuals on, on, on TV and, and models of that kind of thing in the media. But these are just cultural messages, right? There's also the biological imperative, right? There's what we've evolved to be ready to do so that our genes will be passed on. Yeah, because I kind of think after hearing that question, it's the older people are always telling you the longer term. But then I would argue majority of the messaging amongst the younger people are it's like the short term like you get made fun of if you have the girlfriend or you're the girlfriend guy or the second someone breaks up with their partner you can hear this almost every single time without fail i want to go have fun yeah and what does fun mean it means most like, like talk to as many people as possible sleep around more often than not and i've always found it very interesting that the word choice of fun yeah and it's so often correlated with those things and it makes me wonder like do you know of any data to back up the number of partners the short versus long-term relationship if those correlate to like overall perceived happiness yeah um not as cleanly as as i would as i would like mm-hmm. um so there's there's good evidence that um, within a committed relationship, more sex is associated with greater relationship satisfaction, life satisfaction, all this kind of thing. We know that people in a committed romantic relationship, like a long-term committed rela- relationship, live longer, mm-hmm. right? They, they do better. And married people are happier than single people overall. Um, so there's evidence that suggests that the long-term strategy is 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 the winner. But... With that said, you know, I am 100% confident that there are lots of people out there that are having fun pursuing a short-term strategy as well. Um, yeah, I've always just questioned how much is it, like how genuine is the fun? Yeah, yeah. Well, and here, here's the other interesting thing. So when you look at now, it's gotten weird in the last 10 or 15 years, but when you look at the research from the like the 60s and the 70s and 80s and the 90s, um, the pattern was very consistent that in high school, um, men, boys, I mean, in high school, wanted a long-term relationship. They scored higher than the girls did on like desire for romance, commitment, all that stuff. The boys are leading the way in high school. They want, they want somebody, they want something stable. And then they get to college and then something, <laughs> something switches. And it's probably partly the, the, the market, right? Available alternatives. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, probably also a response to, you know, to, to, to cultural messages about what's important. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think there's something very, very deep in the, 
species that says the long-term mating strategy is a good idea. I mean, I think that's there. Yeah. Kind of piggybacking off of that, is college a good time to find a partner? So, so, so full disclosure, I got married when I was 22. Mm. My wife was 21. Um, we were in the middle of college and, um, and we've been married for 28 years. So for me, it worked out pretty well, <laughs> actually. Um, there are reasons to, to think yes, okay? Especially for guys, because again, um, you know, Davis, like I said, is 60% women. Um, that's pretty typical of the nation right now, right? Women are going to college at a rate greater than men. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're a heterosexual guy in college right now, you're probably outnumbered at your college and that that works that works in your favor um but here's the other thing so it's very much the case that similarity um between between partners is is a strong facilitator of um of relationship success and while you're in college you're around a lot of other people that share your values that share some of your goals right they're they're interested in education and all this kind of stuff um and so you know, and you're around a lot of other young people. I mean, when's the next time in your life that you're going to be around 40,000 other young people, people in your, in your age group or your age cohort, even broadly, you know, how many bars would you have to go to when you're, you know, 30 working in a job in New York city before you encounter 40,000 people in your, in your age, in your age group? Yeah. I mean, it's insane. Um, yeah. But with that said, you know, be careful. <laughs> uh, you know, lots of, lots of, you got to make sure that things line up, right? The values and the goals and things. If, the, if those all line up, then yeah. Do you know of any like best strategies to like evaluate whether or not those line up? Yeah. That's the, the challenge is you have to talk to them and not just look at your phone. <laughs> so, um, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think that's, you don't have to talk to them in person. Um, I think it's like 40%, 30 or 40% of marriages now start online. Whoa. And yeah, it's, what? it's, it's huge. And, um, they seem to be just as successful as marriages that start in person. Even though overall we're getting divorced at a higher rate. We're, we're, we're not right. We've been kind of stable since the 1970s, 80s, somewhere really? in there. Yeah. We've kind right of around 50. Yeah, and it's fifty percent of marriages. It's not fifty percent of people. So, yeah. so like about a third of us get divorced, but then we get divorced more than once. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So, I mean, you, you, your odds when you get married are actually pretty good. Like they're they're better than fifty fifty of your marriage okay. remaining intact. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the numbers are scary <laughs> until you kind of dig into them a little bit. Yeah. Now, if if you're you know if you, you guys are about twenty. If you're already on your second or third marriage, then it's not going to get any better, but, you know, um, statistically speaking. But uh, yeah, and and I, and I think sharing experiences um, where you do hard things together that also seems to seem oh, to I, help. About that, I, th I just saw like a recent stat on the likelihood of getting divorced if you start a business together is like exponentially yeah. lower yeah. than if you. Like didn't have a business together. Well, you know, you're you're engaged in some stressful things that are going to make you talk to each other and rely on each other. Yeah. So that seems like a that seems like a good idea. Do you have any other advice for people out there? Um. Yeah. You know. So when we talk about ads, we said that um, one of the problems is they make you more materialistic. They think they make you think that happiness comes from stuff. Happiness comes from our relationships with other people, romantic relationships, friendship relationships, family relationships. Um, even relatively casual relationships can be a source of, of joy and fulfillment to us. Um, so, you know, the, the advice I give is cultivate the relationships, you know, be kind, um, be, be honest, be charitable, give people a little grace, you know, um, and, uh, you know, to the things that, that you need to do in order to, in order to produce that sort of social, um, 
social gel that, that, you know, holds us together and brings us happiness. Yeah. There we have it. Well, thank you, Professor Taylor. It's been wonderful. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.